Chapter Twenty Eight of the Copper Princess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, October two thousand nine. The Copper Princess by Kirk Monroe. Chapter Twenty Eight Left in Sole Possession. Although Ralph Darrell was to all appearance dead, the doctor pronounced him to be still alive, and caused him to be lifted back to the bed, where he dressed his wound, at the same time administering restoratives. While this was being done, Major Arkell, taking charge of Peveril, led him to another room, in which his things, brought from the Trefethen house, had been placed. The young man was still trembling from his recent awful experience. "'In another minute all would have been over with me,' he said, in describing the incident to his friend, "'for I could no more loosen his clutch than if it had been a band of steel.' "'That fall was a mighty lucky thing, then,' commented the other. "'Yes, I suppose it was, for apparently nothing else could have saved me. "'At the same time, think how unpleasant it would have been for me if it had killed him, "'and I had been charged with his murder.' "'Oh, pshaw!' "'No one would have imagined such a thing.' "'His daughter did,' replied Peveril, "'in whose ears Mary Darrell's terrible accusation was still ringing. "'She didn't know what she was saying. "'You must remember the trying circumstances of her position "'and forgive and forget everything else. "'If I am any judge of human character, "'she is just the girl to bitterly regret her hasty words, "'if she ever recalls having uttered them.' "'Of course I forgive her,' said Peveril, but I doubt if I can forget as long as I live. A bath in water as hot as he could bear it, followed by a cold douche and a brisk rubbing with the coarse towels procured from Auntie Nemo, restored the young man to his normal condition. Then he exchanged the ragged gear of a miner that he had worn ever since leaving Red Jacket for a suit of his own proper clothing. With this, the transformation in his appearance was so complete that when, a little later, Mary Darrell passed him in the hall, it was without recognition. She only regarded him as one of the many strangers who seemed suddenly to have taken unauthorized possession of her home. At breakfast time, the doctor reported that his patient was sleeping quietly and doing wonderfully well. "'In fact,' said the medical gentleman, "'I believe the bloodletting that resulted from his fall was just what he needed, and as he seems to have a vigorous constitution, unimpaired by intemperate living,' I predict for him a speedy recovery. This prediction was so far fulfilled that, within two days, Ralph Darrell was sitting up, and, by the end of a week, he had very nearly regained his strength. At the same time, his excitability had wholly disappeared, leaving him very quiet and as docile as a child, but with little memory of past happenings. His daughter was the one person whom he recognized, and to her he clung with passionate fondness, readily accepting her every suggestion, but always begging her to take him back to his eastern home. His rapid convalescence was largely due to her devoted care, and to the capital nursing of Nellie Trefethen, who proved most efficient in the sick-room. During that week the night-watches were taken by Mike Connell, whom Miss Darrell engaged expressly for the purpose, but Peveril was not asked to share them. On the few occasions when he and Mary chanced to meet, she treated him with formal politeness, but rarely spoke, and never gave him the opportunity of exchanging with her more than a few commonplace remarks. 
At the same time she watched him furtively, and he seldom left the house or entered it without her knowledge. She had learned his history, so far as Nellie Trefethen knew it, and by her readiness to listen encouraged the girl to talk by the hour on this theme. She also learned one thing about him that was not told her, and that was that he was engaged to be married. One evening Nellie and Connell, coming back from a walk, encountered Peveril near the house, and close under a window at which Mary happened to be standing. As the young man was about to pass them, the Irishman stopped him, saying, "'Oh, Mr. Peril, would you mind telling Nellie here the thing you told me down the new shaft that time?' "'I don't think I remember what it was.' "'About your being bespoke.' "'Oh, about my engagement. Yes, I remember now that you did want me to tell Miss Nellie of it, though I am sure I can't remember why it should interest her.' "'Our Mr. Peril, don't every young woman be interested to know if she's to smile on a young man or give him the cold stare?' "'If that is the case,' laughed Peveril, "'I am afraid all the girls must give me the cold stare, for I certainly am engaged. And by the way, Miss Nellie, do you know if there is a letter awaiting me at your house? I received one from my sweetheart on the very day that I left Red Jacket.' and with most unpardonable carelessness managed to lose it without having even opened it. "'I don't know, Mr. Peril. I mean, I didn't hear Mother speak of it,' stammered the girl, so frightened that for a moment she had no idea of what she was saying. "'I do mind, though, seeing one advertised in the post-office with a name something like yours,' she added more coherently. "'Then I must have dropped it on the street.' and whoever found it must have been honest enough to return it to the post-office. I will write at once for it, and am much obliged for your information. Some days later Peveril did write to the red-jacket postmaster, and received prompt answer that the bit of mail-matter in question had been sent to the dead-letter office. So he wrote to Washington concerning his missing letter, and in due time learned that it had been returned to sender. Then, as he had no idea of sender's present address, he decided to wait until hearing from her again, before attempting to forward his explanation of how it all happened. In the meantime, he was extremely interested in other affairs that engrossed more and more of his attention. On that very first morning he had shown to Major Arkell several papers that came to him with his baggage. Among these were Boyce Carson's letter, Lawyer Ketchum's note of identification, and the famous contract under which he claimed a half-ownership in the Copper Princess. At a later date he also attempted to show these papers to Mary Darrell, but she declined to look at them, saying that, as she did not doubt the validity of his claim, she had no desire to discuss it. Major Arkell, however, examined the papers carefully, and expressed himself as thoroughly satisfied that his young friend was a half-owner in the mine heretofore known as Darrell's Folly. "'And now,' he said, "'let us examine the property, and see whether it is worth anything or not.' So these two set forth on a tour of inspection. They found the several buildings to be in fair order, and all machinery in an excellent state of preservation. Then they descended the shaft and examined the material through which the several galleries had been driven, and which the white pine manager pronounced as barren even of promise as any rock he had ever seen. "'The trouble seems to be,' he said, "'that they persistently drifted in exactly the wrong direction, and went away from the true vein.' which I believe to be indicated by those ancient workings over yonder, instead of towards it. 
Thus the engineer who laid out this mine either displayed great ignorance, or else their property does not include that strip of territory. But I'll tell you what we'll do. You stay here and hold the fort for a few days while I go and look the thing up. I don't like to have you take so much trouble, protested Peveril. No trouble at all, my dear fellow. Purely a matter of business. I want, if possible, to become associated with you in this proposition. As it now stands, your mine is worthless, unless it includes, or can be made to include, those old workings. I believe they will make it extremely valuable, for I am persuaded that the vein indicated by them can be reached at a lower level from this very shaft. So the Major took his departure, and Peveril waited a whole week for his return. In the meantime, he familiarized himself with his property, and, by means of a careful survey, established the relative positions of the prehistoric mine and the shaft of the Copper Princess. During this week, as had been said, he saw very little of Mary Darrell, and often wondered how she occupied her time. Finally, there came a day when Miss Darrell informed Mike Connell that, as her father was now so much better, it would no longer be necessary to watch with him at night. So the honest fellow, who had been working hard with Peveril on his measurements, and was rejoiced at the prospect of an unbroken night's rest, retired early to the quarters that he and the young proprietor occupied together at some distance from the Darrell's house. Very early on the following morning the two men were awakened by a loud knocking at their door, and the voice of Nellie Trefethen calling as though in distress. "'Coming!' shouted Peveril, as they both sprang from bed and hurriedly dressed, as they emerged from the house, the girl exclaimed, "'They're gone, Mr. Peril, gone in the night, and I never heard a sound. How they went, no one can tell, for all the outer doors were left locked, with the keys on the inside. But they're gone, for I have hunted high and low without finding a sign of them.' "'Who have gone?' demanded Peveril. "'Miss Mary and her father and the old colored woman.' That these three had taken a mysterious departure was only too apparent when the two men returned with Nellie to the house and searched it from top to bottom. Then, under Connell's guidance, they went through the secret passage to the cavern. There they found a lighted lantern hung on the stunted cedar just outside the entrance, the canvas curtain drawn aside, the derrick swung out, and its tackle hanging down to within a foot of the black ledge. But that was all. Three months after that time, Peveril received the following letter. Dear Mr. Peveril, I feel it a duty to tell you that my dear father has at length passed peacefully away, and so will never trouble you again. At the very last he spoke lovingly of Richard Peveril, and said he was a splendid fellow, but I am inclined to think he referred to your father rather than to yourself. He was also perfectly rational on all subjects, except that of the princess, which he persisted in declaring was one of the richest copper mines of the world. I, of course, know better, for I realized long ago how truly the name Darrell's Folly described that unfortunate venture. Whatever pleasure you may find in owning such an unremunerative piece of property, you may enjoy without any fear of molestation, for I, as my father's sole heir, shall never lay claim to any share in it, and hereby authorize you to do with it as you think best." We have been very happy since we left you so suddenly and unexpectedly. The opportunity for departure came, and we embraced it. I have but one more thing to say before closing this one-sided correspondence forever. I humbly beg your pardon and crave your forgiveness 
for the cruel injustice that I once did you in a moment of agony. Trusting that you are happy, I knew of your engagement, and prosperous, I remain always under obligations, your friend Mary Darrell. With this letter there was no date nor address, and its only postmark was the stamp of the railway postal service on a distant eastern road. End of chapter 28